Today on Know the Truth from Philip DeCourcy. There are two stages to the Messiah's work. The Son of Man comes in humility to die and give himself for us. But someday the Son of Man will come in glory with the clouds of heaven and he will establish an indestructible kingdom. That's the very thesis of the book of the Revelation. No matter how much we elevate Jesus Christ in our imagination, we can be sure His true greatness exceeds anything we could comprehend. The Apostle John, who wrote the last book in the Bible, gives us a glimpse of Christ's glory and power in the book of Revelation. And that's our subject today on Know the Truth, as Philip DeCourcy continues his message called Holy Terror. The series is titled You've Got Mail. And remember, you can access the entire series and catch up on any lesson you might have missed on our website, ktt.org. Now, Here's Pastor Philip with today's lesson. We're going to actually look in chapter 1 at the vision that John receives of the risen and radiant Christ. What we have here is an encounter by John of the once crucified, now glorified Christ. The sight is so staggering, he can hardly describe it. That's why he employs this word like again and again and again. The one I saw was like the Son of Man. The one I saw had eyes like a flame of fire. The one I saw had feet like brass. The sight of the Lord Jesus, unveiled and unedited, was so staggering, he just falls to the floor as a dead man. This was Christ as he now was, not as he had once been. Jesus didn't stay put as the Jesus of Nazareth. His humiliation was over. According to Philippians 2, 5 through 11, God the Father has highly exalted him. The cross is behind him. The coronation is before him. He's no longer the servant king of the gospels. He's the king of kings to be lauded, worshiped within the church and someday among the nations. The lamb has become the lion. He's no longer now in a state of humiliation before men in the form of a servant. He has finished his work. The offering for sin has been made and heaven has rejoiced at his triumph over the grave. Oh, it's the same Jesus, but he's different. He who came the first time as the lowly carpenter's son, meek and muted in some ways, is to come a second time in power and glory. John is overcome by majesty. That's the first thing we want to see here. And that's about as far as we're going to get. And we won't even exhaust that. The majesty and the marvel of the unveiled Christ was such that John simply and suddenly keels over, falls on his face as a dead man before the Lord Jesus. Chapter 1, verse 17. Some years earlier, John thought nothing of laying his head on the very chest of the Lord Jesus. But things have changed. It's the same Jesus, but he's different. The glory that John got just a little snippet of on the Mount of Transfiguration now has come into full view. The brilliance and the beauty of Christ is stunning. Let's look at the description. 
Number one, in describing Jesus as the Son of Man, John is primarily picking up the prophecy of Daniel, which anticipates the coming of the Messiah as the ruler of this universe. Look at verse 13. Then I turned to see the voice, verse 12, spoke with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. Now, this is a term that's used 81 times in the Gospels. It's one of Jesus' favorite self-designations and self-descriptions. But it's interesting, its use um, in the Gospels is, is always uh, involving two articles. It's, it's translated the son of the man, but not here. And I think that's because John's not so much drawing his idea from the Gospels, it's actually from the prophecy of Daniel. Go back with me to Daniel chapter 7 and you'll see where he gets this idea. Comparing Scripture with Scripture, we'll see this. Daniel 7 Daniel's given a, a vision of the coming Messiah. How is this Messiah described? Look at verse 13 of Daniel 7. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with clouds of heaven. Now that speaks of Jesus' second coming, doesn't it? Coming with clouds of heaven. That kind of echoes what Jesus teaches in um, the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. He came to the Ancient of Days, which is a description of the Father, God the Father, and they brought him near before him, God the Father. Then to him, that is the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages would serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah. We now know with the advancement of progressive redemptive history that there are two stages to the Messiah's work. The Son of Man comes in humility to die and give himself for us. But someday the Son of Man will come in glory with the clouds of heaven and he will establish an indestructible kingdom. That's the very thesis of the book of the Revelation. So no wonder this is the image that's set before John. Secondly, look at the next part of the description, in describing Jesus as the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet and wearing a golden sash across his chest, John is probably alluding to the high priestly nature of Jesus' person and work. Go back to Revelation chapter 1 and verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, this image of Daniel's coming Messiah clothed with a garment down to his feet and girded about the chest with the golden band. Now, what are we to make of this? My best sense of this is that this is presenting Christ in his high priestly ministry, his present ministry. Because after his death for us and his resurrection on our behalf as a sign of God's acceptance of his work, what do we read in the book of Hebrews? That the Lord Jesus Christ passed into the heavens for us. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that uh, he saves to the uttermost all that will come unto God by him, for he ever lives to make intercession for them. Paul tells us, doesn't he, in his letter to Timothy, there is one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus, the Son of Man. This, uh, this word for tunic or garment is used consistently in the LXX, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, this word is used consistently of the high priest garments. 
You can read in Leviticus 16, verses 1 through 4, and Exodus 28, verse 4, of this long tunic that the high priest will wear, and it's set off with a sash coming across his chest. What a beautiful description of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's our high priest. He's the one who is our advocate before the Father, should we sin. I was interested to learn some years ago that the, the Latin term for priest is pontiff or um, pontifax. It's an engineering term that means bridge builder. Building a bridge between two chasms, making a way from one place to another place. And it's a wonderful image of the high priestly ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and the role of a priest. The role of a priest is to enter is to be an intermediate. And Jesus Christ is that perfect intermediate. Because you and I need to remind ourselves that entrance into God's presence is always mediated. You and I can't go waltzing into God's presence by ourselves. In the old covenant, you had the Levitical priesthood and the Aaronic priesthood. If the people of God were to approach God, they did it through the priests. Entrance into God's presence was always mediated. The summation and fulfillment of that priesthood gathers in the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Hebrews, our great high priest. And he's the bridge builder. He's perfect for the job because on the one hand, he's fully God. And by means of the incarnation and the virgin birth, he has become fully man. He can perfectly mediate because he understands both sides of the situation. We have this set before us. It's a wonderful thing to know that Jesus is in heaven mediating for us. That we can come unto God by him because he ever lives to make intercession for us. Some years ago, I got to visit the White House in Washington, D.C. through an American friend. I wasn't living in the States at the time. It was a pen pal, and he had a friend inside the White House, and we were able to get inside the White House. In fact, we were able to actually get inside the Oval Office. It was during the time of the Carter administration, and so um, while I missed the president, I nevertheless was kind of bowled over that I was standing inside the kind of the throne room of, of, of American life and government. The place where, you know, laws are, are enacted and decisions are made that are worldwide in scope. It's kind of a, a really significant moment. And it was all because we knew someone on the inside, someone working in the Carter administration. And you know what? You'll never get into heaven without knowing somebody on the inside. There's no handle on the outside of the door to heaven. It can only be opened from the inside. And it can be opened by one who's like the son of man with a garment down to his feet and a sash across his chest. The priest, the mediator, the advocate for sinners. In fact, this image is reinforced by way of footnote by the fact that he stands amidst the lampstands. The churches are likened to lampstands, which is an echo of the priestly ministry of the uh, Levites who went about the temple trimming the lampstands. That was Samuel's job. Robert Murray McShane says, what little Samuel did was to walk among the candlesticks and see that they kept burning. So doth Christ walk in the midst of believers to preserve them and see that they burn to pour in fresh oil to give the Holy Spirit. 
Beautiful picture. Let's move on to another description. In describing Jesus as having a head and hair as white as snow, John is conveying agelessness and eternality. White hair in the Bible or silver hair in the Bible is always an image of dignity. What are we doing dyeing our hair in old age? It's a sign of dignity. It's a mark of maturity, we hope so, of, 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 of age and lengthened experience and, and deep wisdom. Look at those verses in Proverbs 16.31 and Proverbs 20.29. 20, and so what's the significance of white hair? I think it speaks of agelessness. In fact, if we go back to Daniel chapter 7, the ancient of days is a description of God the Father. And he's spoken of earlier on in that prophecy in verse 9, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated and his garment, look, was white as snow and the hair on his head like pure wool. This is an image of agelessness, eternality. Drawing from the image of the ancient of days in Daniel's prophecy, John acknowledges the eternality of Jesus. Now, while we see in Daniel's prophecy that the Son of Man was distinct from the ancient of days, when we put the complete image of the Bible together, the Son of Man shares the same nature as the ancient of days. And our Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses need to learn that and learn that quickly before Jesus comes. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the one who is to come is the one who has always been. Look at verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. I love this um, this word of exhortation from Dennis Johnson in his commentary in Revelation, he says this, head and hair, white like wool, like snow. The words declare the agelessness of Jesus Christ. He was there before the beginning. He will be there after the end. He is here in the middle. He has been around to see it all. The rise and fall of ancient Assyria and Babylon, Persia, the rise and fall of Greece and Rome, the rise and fall of the world dominating empires of Spain and Britain. He has been around and watched the ascent and collapse of ideologies of apartheid, Marxism, Darwinism. Rulers have had their day. Systems of thought have had their day. But he keeps standing. Amen. Amen. He will outlive the pole bearers of Christianity. He will have the last word. He will be the last man standing because he is the son of man with the same nature as the ancient of days. Beautiful. In April 15, 1865, Secretary of War Edwin Stanton rose from the bedside of a dying Abraham Lincoln. He walked to the window. He pulled the blind. The sun came in. He looked back at the still form of Lincoln and he said, Now he belongs to the ages. Of course, there's a, an element of truth to that, but it can't be completely true of Lincoln. It can only be true of Jesus Christ because you can't belong to the ages unless the ages belong to you. And the ages belong to the ageless Christ who stands in front of John as the son of man and the great high priest and the eternal son with eyes like a fire, a flame of fire. This is where we'll stop. 
John was highlighting the penetrating and omniscient gaze of Christ as he walks amidst the churches. Look at verse 14. His head and hair were like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. This speaks of the omniscience of Christ, that everything before him is full disclosure. I mean, if man can view golf balls and car license plates from outer space, how much more is it the case that the one whose eyes go into throughout the earth, beholding the good and evil, will not see it all? What does Hebrews 4.13 tell us? Everything is laid bare and open to him. We stand naked before God. Nothing escapes his attention or his holy intelligence. That's why we won't take time to look at it. But if you look at all the letters, the law was begin with something like this. And I know your tribulation. I know your works of service. I know because he knows. Jesus not only sees man, he sees through man. And everything is an open book to Christ. And he reads the small print of our lives. And that's challenging. In fact, I would suggest to you in, that that just may well be the image in 1 Corinthians 3. You know we're going to stand before the judgment seat of Christ, right? And give an account for the things done in the body. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 9, and 10. And the explanation of that scene comes in 1 Corinthians 3. And all of our works, according to 1 Corinthians 3, will be tested, what? As by fire. What fire? I think this fire. The flaming, fiery eyes of the omniscient Christ who will look at our works and he will not only see what we have done, he will look into why we did it. Because in fact, that's what 1 Corinthians 3 tells us. He will look at the kind of work we did. See, you can do the right thing the wrong way. You can sing and not mean it. You can give without hilarity and cheerfulness. You can be hypocritical in the way you act towards others because it's not about humbly serving them or God. It's about making yourself look good. And on and on we could go. And there's coming a day when you and I will stand before this risen Christ who has eyes as a flame of fire and nothing will be hidden. The shell game will be over. The pretense will stop. And only that which was done the right way and with the right motive will return to our reward. There was a portrait hanging in the uh, kind of common room of the Irish Baptist College in Belfast where I was trained in the ministry. It's a picture of an old pastor who founded the school. His name was Louis Deans. Or he didn't find it, but he was one time principal. A very revered man among Irish Baptists, pastor of Orangefield Baptist Church in Belfast. And the interesting thing about that portrait is, well, no matter where you sat in the room, you always felt Louis was looking at you. You know, you're having a conversation with your pals or drinking a cup of tea or moaning about the workload the professor has given you. You kind of look up and you go, he's still looking. <laughs> and it was like he was looking down going, guys, you better not mess up. You better preach the truth. You better live a life of holiness. You better preach the gospel. You better shepherd your people because you're not really living under the scrutiny of my eyeballs. You're living under the scrutiny of the one whose eyes are a flame of fire. 
So get about the work. Do your homework and do it well. Preach your sermons and preach them well. Live your life and live it well. Let's pray. Oh God, indeed, this has been a challenging, in some ways crushing sermon as we have been brought to see what John saw. No God, it, it, it curses much that passes as modern-day worship. Oh God, how familiar we have become with you. And when the church is called to worship, how inconsistent we are in our attendance, how sloppy sometimes we are in arriving. And you walk amidst the candlestick here at Kindred and you weigh the sermon and you measure us. And, oh God, we trust we are not provoking you to walk out. But we have got a proper appreciation and a proper approximation of who you are. Oh God, help us to fall down as dead men before the glory of the risen Christ. Help us to be more offended when his name is taken in vain. May our love be hotter. May our service be bolder. May our giving be greater. May our lives tell for Christ. The one who is amidst the church and someday will, as the Son of Man, establish an indestructible kingdom. Though God, if there are those who are here who don't know you, may they come to you as the one mediator between God and man. May they put all their eggs in the one basket of Christ. May they trust him alone and realize that his sacrifice on the cross was enough and his intercession before the Father is effective. And they don't need to make their own sacrifices and they don't need to come through a human priest, but they can go to the one who is both priest and sacrifice. The one to whom belongs the ages and who belongs to the ages and who can give to us eternal life. For these things we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It is comforting to know that Jesus hasn't left us to figure out how to live our lives on our own. No, he's already provided everything we need in his word. You're listening to a message called Holy Terror from Philip de Corsi, which is part of a larger series about the seven churches in Revelation. You can listen to any of these messages when you visit us online at ktt.org or by downloading the KTT app or podcast to your mobile device. Well, today on Know the Truth, we've been reminded that Christ will someday return in glory. But in the midst of the daily grind, we can lose sight of the hope that's coming just over the horizon. Some people get so caught up in thinking about the Antichrist or the tribulation that they forget the good news that Jesus has overcome. Well, here at Know the Truth, each day our goal is to share the gospel with the world in need of truth through clear and convicting Bible teaching, because it's the Word of God that gives hope, restores, and changes lives. And that's why this month we've chosen a book that gives believers practical guidance on how to influence the lives around them for Jesus Christ. It's called Authentic Influencer by Jonathan Murphy. God's approach to influencing the world is through His people. And yet, many of God's people spectate from the sidelines, unsure of what to do. Authentic Influencer is rooted in biblical principles from the life of Barnabas. And with this book, you'll learn how to begin investing in others through discipleship, changing lives one by one. This book is yours with a gift of any amount. Call us at 888-644-8811 or visit ktt.org. 
And if you're a new listener or have never reached out before, we want to send you a free devotional booklet by Pastor Philip. It's called Seven Days of Truth, Resting in God's Faithfulness. Learn more about it online at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Thanks for joining us today. Tomorrow, Philip DeCourcy will be back with more in our study in the book of Revelation. Join us again Thursday for Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Yeah.